Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Chris Diglio. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of IBBA Insights. You know, statistics show that the majority of business business owners looking to sell their business are first-time sellers. They've never done it before. They know their business, but do they know how to sell their business? If you're a business owner, today's episode is going to be invaluable to you. You're, you know, you spent a lifetime taking care of yourself and your family from the profits of your business. Now you have one shot at selling it. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you ready? And if you're a business broker, you're going to hear from two of the best on what to do, what not to do, and everything in between when it comes to the sale of the business. So you're in for a treat today. You're going to hear from two seasoned business broker professionals who are well-respected in our industry talking about the important things to know when selling a business. So I'm just going to jump right into it because we have a lot of content. I'm going to first introduce Ryan Cave, who's the president of Sunbelt Business Brokers of South Florida and is also the president of the Business Brokers of Florida South District. Uh, Ryan, welcome to IBBA Insights. All right, thank you. I look forward to to speaking with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to be on today. Um, also joining us is Jeff Snell, the founder and owner of Inline Business Brokers and Advisors in Raleigh, North Carolina, and also a past chair of the International Business Brokers Association. Jeff, thank you for taking time to be on the show today. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. So. I know both of you are extremely busy running your own businesses. And as I mentioned in the start of the show, business owners are hopefully great at what they do. They know how to run their business. They know how to sell their, their services or their, or their products or whatever they have, but they really never uh, think of the sale of their business. Or, or if they do, it's kind of an afterthought. But it's the most important asset that they have. And as I mentioned, they have one time to get it right. So I'm going to throw these questions out there to you guys, some talking points, and, and feel free. Let's go back and forth and discuss them because they're, they're very important. But let's start off with, the, with the, probably the first and most obvious question, and I'll direct it to Ryan. Ryan, if you're a business owner, when is the right time to prepare for the sale of your business? Well, we always hope that our business owners are setting the foundation early, and early meaning when they started the, started the company or when they acquired the company. That isn't always the case. Most of the times people are running full steam, trying to get the business uh, where they want it to be, especially in those early years. So whether you're starting early to uh, set that foundation with um, processes and and accountants and consolidating your your record keeping, whether you're starting early or we have owners who follow the um, systems like the 12-week year where they're ticking off major goals to try to get things done uh, alongside running their business. The best time to do it is early and not wait until you're ready to sell. Yeah, I agree with Ryan completely. I'm, I'm known for telling clients that the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, but the second best time is today. Absolutely. You know, it, it, you know, we don't want to scare people. We don't want to make them listen to this episode and think, oh, my God, I haven't prepared preparing for the sale of my business. What am I going to do? Well, that's okay. Don't wait till tomorrow. That's what you do. You start today. And, and, and the, the thought is, with, by the end of this episode, they're going to be more prepared. But So most business owners are 
look at time frames. Uh, Ryan said just a second ago, you know, they look at the beginning of the year, maybe goals that they're looking to achieve during the, during the year. But Jeff, if, if I'm a business owner um, and I'm looking to possibly sell my business and I identify it, I'm going to go to market. How long, how long is it going to take? Well, that's going to have a couple factors that impact the, the time frame. The size of the business is a, a big uh, impact. Generally, the smaller the business, the faster the process can be uh, managed. Uh, larger the business, uh, the longer it may take. But on average, four months to seven months is probably average. Our industry market pulse survey uh, has hovered as high as 12 plus months. But in that four to seven month range should be the target for most transactions, in my opinion. Being the president of the, the BBF South District, you probably have an idea of, in Florida, at least, what it looks like. We have a, a lot of data on 25,000 plus sold listings that we've seen through our our business brokers of Florida MLS over the last 20 plus years. And I really think it depends not only on the size, but the price. Obviously, the more premium of a price that, that, that the business has on it, the less likely you're going to find that one buyer who's willing to pay the premium. And I also think it depends on the saleability. And the saleability is not just, again, not just size, but industry and location and the owner's involvement in the business. So, we always say that it takes from 90 days to never. Um, 90 days is if you've got something that's just right, it's priced right, the story makes sense, the packaging makes sense, the industry makes sense, and there's a demand. And never is is also in the equation. There are plenty of businesses um, that are either unsellable because of the industry or the type, or they're unsellable because of seller's expectations or the seller's involvement in the business. So. Um, typically, we say, um, uh, similar to Jeff's answer, where we say it's six to 12 months in Florida, we know we see many, many, many times where the days on market is is well over a year, and it's always hard to tell whether that's because it finally got priced right or packaged right, or if it just found the one buyer who was willing to pay the premium. And I think you guys hit the nail right on the head. You know, it, it depends on a lot of factors, size of the business. You know, if you're working in, in, in M&A, um, you know, it could take two years to sell a business. Um, if you're working in Main Street, you know, the national average has always been somewhere around six and a half to seven months. And, and then it just depends, again, on how you're selling your business. You know, do I sell it myself or, or do I use a business broker? And if I use a business broker, uh, is it the business broker that's going to uh, understand and know the market and help me with that. So, Jeff, I'm going to throw this out at you. If I'm sitting here thinking about selling my business, you know, is it kind of like a house? Can I do a FISBO or should I use a business broker? I know that's a loaded question since you're a business broker, but but in all in all sincerity, I, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, it's an important topic. Referencing the uh, Market Pulse survey again, every report I've seen for the last 20 years has reflected the same number one concern among sellers, which is confidentiality. And just from a practical perspective it's impossible to be confidentially in the market when you're representing yourself. So perhaps the, the number one reason to consider engaging with a business broker uh, or an M&A advisor is confidentiality. But I would like to add to that that the, the second biggest benefit, in my opinion, is that you'll avoid the biggest problem that Ryan mentioned, which is going to market at a price that's not market appropriate. A business broker, especially a certified business intermediary with the International Business Brokers Association, is trained on how to properly value each specific business and client engagement that they encounter. 
So th- those would be the first two, in my opinion. It's it's a, a hard process to manage when you don't know when, what you don't know. Ryan, you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I do think um, I think Jeff is right on the right track, especially in terms of the risk of breaching confidentiality. Partially, that breach is because it takes longer when there's not somebody to babysit the milestones and to push that buyer. When when the buyer thinks that they're the only buyer in the market, they tend to take their time and cross every I and dot every T, so to say. But without that uh, push from the broker or from an outside person, as the time grows longer, the risk of of the word getting out to the public uh, goes up. There's also things like the opposite happens. Uh, not only is the business priced inappropriately on the high side, but there are often cases where, where sellers are leaving money on the table. I had one recently where it was a business that was really in demand. We had spoken with uh, the seller, given him a broker's opinion of value, and he found somebody in the market that was willing to do something really quickly, but he left a ton, you know, more than a million dollars uh, a table. And he was happy with it. I didn't have the the uh, courage to tell him that he probably left uh, that much money on the table, but he was happy with it. And so people do do it themselves, but it's not recommended. Um, not only that, our, we have a fantastic Rolodex of advisors who understand the transaction process, whether it's attorneys and accountants, wealth managers, lo- uh, lending providers, and to go through the brain damage of finding all those people uh, yourself when you're not well-versed in selling your business, you know, is really time-consuming and stressful. Another consideration that I think business owners would want to have top of mind is that what we do is a full-time job for us. And when a business owner chooses to take on that challenge themselves, it distracts them from operating their business. And one of the most damaging things that can happen is that a buyer six months in or 12 months in is looking at financials and they're seeing a decline in top-line sales and profits. That That's a, a huge impact on enterprise value of the company. And that's something that a business broker can help you avoid. A business broker that's experienced and qualified is going to add more value to your transaction in terms of actual dollars received at the closing table and time saved on the business seller's part than they take in commissions. The the commission, honestly, and as you said, uh, it's a, a loaded answer, but the commission that a business broker earns should be looked at as an investment and not an expense. Yeah, and and if if you hire a business broker or a business intermediary that brings a lot of value to the table, they can earn their fee alone just in the negotiation of the deal. And and you stole my thunder a little bit, Jeff, but I'm glad you did jump in. I was gonna that was the point I was gonna make a second ago was the time value. You know, you 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 want to spend time running your business, not trying to sell your business. If you spend time trying to sell your business, which is a full time job, you're gonna you're gonna lose out on your on the on your business that you're running, which can affect the, the sale price or the whether it's attractive or not. So whether it's attractive or not leads into my next uh, conversation I want to have with you guys. And, you know, you take a lifetime to build a business, you run a business, you, you, you pay for your families, uh, you know, it, it affords you all the luxuries of life, but you have one shot at selling it. And, and in order to sell it for the maximum dollar amount, it has to be attractive to buyers. So what can a business owner do to make their business more saleable and more attractive to buyers. And, and I'll start with you, Jeff, and then Ryan, I'd like you to chime in after that. I think there's a, a wide range of factors, but I'll touch on just two. 
the most common quoted is clean books and records. That's what a buyer is going to have to evaluate. That's what a lender is going to evaluate. That's what the SBA underwriter is most likely going to be involved uh, going to evaluate. And and harkening back to an earlier point in, in our podcast, the the price. You, to be attractive, you have to be appropriately priced. And I think clean clean books and records is a there's a a wide definition of clean books and records. You don't need perfect books and records, but you need verifiable books and records and a process for how you're keeping um, your your books. The other thing that uh, sellers can do to to improve the their opportunity of selling the business at the best price is to be organized in all other facets of their business. Again, whether it's how they organize their their company documents, uh, whether they've got um, um, really, really good processes in the business, if they've got policies for their staff, all those things really help keep the owner out of the day-to-day of the business. The smaller the business, it's really hard, obviously, to keep the owner out of the day-to-day. But as the businesses grow, you should hope to see some scale where the owner maybe isn't in the field as often or they're not doing all of the estimates or they're not involved in key points of the sales cycle or they don't have heavy um, heavy reliance on individual personal customer relationships. You know, the more that the owner can spread those responsibilities among the office or the staff, uh, the more likely it is that a buyer is going to be able to come in, do what the owner does and see the same or better success after the sale. There are some other things we could, you know, you can look at what makes a business more saleable or attractive. And you know, sometimes it's just the way your your business runs. Do you have one giant customer that's a large portion of your business or or do you have a lot of customers where if you lose one, it, it's not as, uh, it doesn't harm your business as much. So it's not as risky to a potential uh, a buyer that's going to come in and take over your corporate culture, you know, your employees, do you have good employees? Are, are they strong? Are they, are they happy to be there? Are they motivated? Do they want to be there? And, 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 you know, in today's day and age, you know, how do people view you? Because it's easy enough. If you're looking to buy a business, you go do a Google review on them and you can see, you know, are they, are they one star reviews all the way across the board and, and, and people have horrible things to say and, or are they great? And even if people have horrible things to say about them, some buyers look at that as an opportunity and say, I can buy this and I can, there's a lot of improvement to make on the business, but you know, it, it might not do well to the owner for the price of his business. But one thing I want to go back on, you guys both mentioned books and records, clean books and records. And one mistake I think a lot of business owners make is they try to hide or bury as much profit in their P&L as possible in order to pay less tax at the end of the year. And I, I sit down with business owners and I talk to them about this and I say, you know, what is your tax rate? So for every dollar you you don't pay tax on, are you, you saving 20 cents, 25 cents, 30 cents? But for every dollar we have on the books, if your business is selling for a two multiple or a three multiple or a four multiple, um, that's two, three, four, five dollars. You know, which is greater? I'd love to hear your guys' thought on that. Well, I think it's a reality of, of our of our industry that we're going to have we're going to receive files that include books and records that are are not perfect, and the expectation should not be that the seller have perfect books and records. Um, I don't in 17 years and thousands of reviews. I don't think I've ever seen perfect books and records. What we need to have is 
transparency in those books. If you're if the seller is doing things to minimize their tax um, obligation, then those things need to be uh, documented and transparent and disclosed. There are ways to get through those. Not every deal is underwritten by a lender. Not every, especially in Main Street, not every deal is got a private equity group that's looking for a QOV report, quality of earnings report, or audited financials. So the reality of our industry is, is that as a broker, we're going to have to get through some of those challenges. Obviously, we would prefer clean, clean books and records, but it's not always the case. What it, what it shouldn't do if you're a business owner is preclude you from saying, I'm never going to sell my, be able to sell my business because my books and records are not auditable or perfect. Jeff, what you know, about that nasty C word, cash? You know, people, that cash, I know we don't deal in cash in the business. If it's not on the books, we're not going to recognize it. But how much is the, for those business owners out there that, that do deal with cash and some things maybe not make their, their, doesn't make their books and, and it's not, and you can't show or verify it. How are they harming themselves in the, in the potential sale of their business? Well, I'd like to be able to say this is an original quote, but it's not. I'm stealing from, from someone else in our industry. But the, the quote is, you can't steal the money twice. So if somebody is taking cash, and this is prevalent in, in some industries over others, they've already gotten the benefit with the associated risk of making that decision. They're not then going to be able to receive a multiple on the money that they didn't pay the taxes on. So in the, in the rare cases that I see this, and it's rare because I practice mainly in the lower middle market where, where those type things are less prevalent, I tell them they need to start depositing it. And between the time of engagement and closing, we can recognize that revenue, but otherwise it's really in the rearview mirror. What they're leaving on the table is the multiple that the business would sell for, which I, I think Ryan and Cress, you would agree that on the main street is two to three times and in lower middle market is four to six times. Of course, there's always outliers, but for the $1 that of cash that they took and they saved an effective rate of 25 cents on, uh, they're leaving uh, two to $3 on the table on main street and four to $6 in lower middle market. That's a big number yeah, times a, that by thousands or tens of thousands, and that's huge. Would you rather save a quarter or earn three bucks? Yeah, and it's up to us as business brokers to tell our clients maybe it's time for you to to wait, as as Jeff mentioned, either from the t and, and start doing things properly from the time of the engagement, or or depending on what the calendar looks like, to wait until the end of the year and and get your tax filings in order properly. Um, but you know, to be transparent and honest with that seller, not just looking for the engagement, but looking for the right thing to do in time, those right things will come back to us as brokers and, and the, the sellers, they may not understand it or appreciate it at the moment, but they will over time. I, I think perhaps a counterintuitive point to some sellers as it relates to disclosure beyond financial matters is operational matters. I've found uh, in my experience that in a virtually 100% of cases, a prospective buyer would rather hear about the hair on the deal than discover it in, in the 11th hour of due diligence. And the, another benefit of, of sharing operational deficiencies or, or other challenges the business may have, one, it's obviously an area of opportunity for the buyer, but it also builds rapport between the intermediary and the seller as being transparent and open and honest about issues that may be difficult or challenging to talk about on the front end. Yeah, I think you guys both make great points. And, you know, we, 
we preach to the business owners, good books and records, good books and records, good books and records. It's going to, you know, it's going to get you more money in the end. And, and Ryan made a comment uh, one, a couple of minutes ago when he said, you know, in all the years I haven't seen perfect books and records. I saw it one time and this will make you guys laugh. I took the business to market and, and literally there was nothing, nothing funny at all. Uh, everything was above board. And there was this buyer and, and he couldn't grasp that. And it bothered him. He said, I can't buy this business. There's, there's nothing extra in there for me to benefit from. It's all on the books. And so I had the one buyer in the world that was upset that there were good books and records, but the, the 99 uh, other of the, out of the hundred were are very happy about that. <laughs> Never isn't the right answer. We, we have seen them really, really close or perfect in the eyes of the buyer, right? We're not the, at the end of the day, uh, none of us here are writing the check for the business. So beauty is in the eye of the beholder and the buyer gets to determine what's perfect and not. And if you're selling a business that has got a cash component, typically that buyer is coming from an environment where they understand cash and they understand the industry and the business. And those those records can still be some can still sometimes be perfect in the eyes of the buyer. Look, there's always going to be addbacks and adjustments to be made to someone's financials or there wouldn't be organizations like the IBBA that have courses on you know, analyzing and recasting financial statements. So obviously there are things that are acceptable, things we could do, things the bank will accept, things they won't accept. And it's our job to be able to uh, show the business owner what those are and explain to them. And that's another benefit of having a business broker over trying to do it yourself. Because if you do it yourself, what are you exposing yourself to? What can you do? What can't you do? And how are you going to get it done? So we, we went through the process. Okay. Um, how do I prepare my business for sale? How long is it going to take? And, I'm going to hire a business broker now because I don't have time to sell it myself. And now I know what it takes to make it more attractive to buyers. Now it's listed and it's listed for sale. What can the seller expect during the marketing uh, for buyers process? What, what, what's next for them? What, if I'm a business owner and I say, Ryan, you know, now you've listed my business, you're out there looking for buyers. What's next? Uh, typically nothing quickly. So it's not like selling a house where you're going to have an open house on Sunday and have all kinds of people walking through and all of a sudden, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of activity. Typically what the broker is doing is they're uh, collecting documents on the buyer. They're starting to understand their, their motivations and their capabilities. They're also out looking for opportunities to have that business financed by a third party. Uh, so the buyer's got some options. They're going slow, especially at the beginning when they're understanding the last thing that we want to do is, is be overly aggressive in terms of um, talking to buyers that may not be just the right buyer for the business. So early on, what happens is not a lot quickly. And in general, in the brokerage business and, and in selling your business, uh, most of these entrepreneurs are, are used to making decisions and making things happen quickly. And that is not always the case here, especially when we talk about timelines between, you know, four to 12 months or, or 90 days to never. Uh, the second thing that you can expect is to answer a lot of questions. So the, the broker and their office is going to ask you a lot of questions in order to package the business and tell the, the story of the business and put the, the business in its best light. And so um, you can expect a lot of questions. And, and the reason for those questions is to keep the seller from having to answer those same questions every time they speak with a, a new prospective buyer. And then the, the last thing to expect is, is a lack of 
complete control. Again, these entrepreneurs are used to controlling every part of their business. And in reality, there's very few parts of this that the seller uh, can control. Um, and so the, the seller really has to understand that they've got a professional or a team of professionals working with them. Um, the communication needs to be open and consistent, but the control, a lot of that control goes away uh, once you put the business on the market. Jeff, would you like to add anything to that? Or what would you say about the process for a, for a seller? Now the business is being marketed. It's, you know, now that you're searching for buyers, you know, what, what, what can I expect during this time frame? Well, immediately after launch is quite a busy time for me. We partner with public business for sale websites, both on the main street and lower middle market level. And that's the time that you capture all of the, what I call pent up demand. These are buyers that have built profiles on the websites and with proactive marketing, uh, they're going to receive notification of that new listing that meets their criteria. So the time that's invested in that, again, time that we're saving our client sellers is, in my view, disqualifying buyers, not trying to bring eight people to the table at the same time that aren't qualified or able to close. So we spend uh, at my firm more time disqualifying a prospective buyer, either for financial reasons, industry experience reasons, geographic reasons, or just have been labeled as a tire kicker they inquire on virtually every listing we take to market so that we're not wasting our sellers time with phone calls and potentially meetings with buyers that are never going to find their way to a, a closing table. Those are great points. So guys, we're out there. You're marketing the business. You're going through these buyers, buyer interviews, and they're, they're meeting with the buyer. They're answering questions. And you get a buyer to a point where they're excited enough about the business where they're going to make an offer. And a business owner out there thinks, oh, they're going to make me an offer. They're going to give me a, a price on what they want for the business. But uh, let's talk about, Jeff, beyond the negotiating of the sales price. What else should a seller expect to negotiate beyond, again, just what the price of the business is? They're in a typical deal or probably one to three dozen different terms and conditions that are going to come into play. And with the SBA rule update from May 10th, uh, specifically uh, 511HL on the main street, SBA loans can now guarantee transactions that have only partial equity sale, meaning that the, the seller can maintain what we call rollover equity uh, and continue to partic participate for, for more than one year, not only as an equity owner, but as an employee or contractor. So many people agree that you can give the buyer the right if I'm representing the buyer to negotiate all the terms and conditions and the seller can choose their price, let's say we have a business worth a million dollars. We're hoping to get between 90, uh, 90% and 96% of that on average, again, referencing the market fault survey over, over many years. And the seller says, well, I, I recognize it's worth a million dollars, but I want $10 million. And the importance of the terms and conditions are the buyer agrees and says, I'm more than happy to pay $10 million. And the first term is payment will be $1 per year. So the terms and conditions in that example can be more important than some of the static uh, components of the transaction, such as purchase price. Terms and the price are a, are like the the legal scale. You know, as one goes up, the other one goes down typically. So they are. It is a, a give and take on terms. The other things that they can expect to negotiate are are what the seller's duties are after closing, what the legal terms are of the purchase agreement and as as a, and as uh, related to the 
promissory note, their training, their non-compete provisions. They need to be, you're going to negotiate the timing of how materials are released to the to the buyer. But I mentioned that there's a lot to negotiate in these purchase agreements. Not only the price and the terms, which are kind of a sliding scale as price gets better, terms get worse, and as terms get better, price gets worse. And that's a reflection of the risk that the buyer is taking in the transaction. The other things that you can expect to to negotiate are the timing of the deal, not just the closing date, but all of the milestones included in the purchase agreement and uh, how long the buyer has to do their due diligence, how long they have to obtain financing or get third-party approvals. You're going to negotiate, the seller's going to negotiate their transition duties and timeframes. They're going to negotiate the specific terms of their non-compete. They're going to negotiate how uh, information is shared and when information is shared with the buyer. So say they have a very uh, specific and quiet customer list. They might, during due diligence, explain customer A, customer B, customer C, but not the contact details of that customer list until late in the due diligence process or at the end of due diligence or after all of the third-party contingencies are cured. So as Jeff said, there's dozens of things to consider, and we haven't even touched on the legal language. One of the things that a seller is going to negotiate early is between uh, them and their uh, attorney to make sure that they've got an attorney that is well-versed in the structure of the sale, the type of uh, documents that are legal documents that are going to be required, and that there's a, a consistency among what is typical in the marketplace in terms of legal language and what that um, attorney or advisor is going to provide. I'm glad that Ryan raised the topic of attorneys. In my view, every transaction, because as uh, Crash, you mentioned at the top of the, the show, typically our clients' largest and most valuable asset is their business. It's not the time to cut corners and try to save a few bucks in either not using an attorney or finding the le least expensive attorney. And there's also a difference between attorneys. Much like doctors, you want to go to a podiatrist for brain surgery. You don't want to go to a general business attorney for transaction advice. There's a special area of law known as transaction law that focuses specifically on the purchase and sale of, of small and large businesses. And those are the people that both buyer and seller should seek out to be on their side of the table throughout the process. And, and even inside of that specialty, as soon as those things get transferred to a, a stock purchase agreement, it's, it's evident really quickly that the attorney is out over their skis and we've got the wrong service provider here. And so early on, it's important for the broker to talk to the seller about the likely transaction uh, structure and then spend a little bit of time early on. It only takes a few minutes uh, with that attorney so that everybody knows, yes, of course, every attorney is going to say they know how to do everything, but we need to not interview them or test them, but we need to get a, an understanding that they know what we're accustomed to, which is that level of expertise on most of our other transactions because we have such a great Rolodex. Now, guys, earlier we talked about all the things that you prepare for a sale, let's say the pre-diligence, gathering all the information, making sure everything's in order, uh, being ready for the time when something actually is under contract. So now 
you've negotiated with the buyer, you've, you, you're under contract. Now you're going to that area, which we call due diligence. And here's where I want to turn it over to both uh, Ryan and Jeff to talk about the due diligence process to a, someone that's a business owner out there. Maybe the first time they're hearing about what is due diligence and, and, and during due diligence, how much information should you give? Um, you know, how much do you give prior to an accepted offer and when is it the proper time to do due diligence and what's acceptable to give a buyer during this time period and, and how important is it, you know, what, not just what is given, but at what time is it given to them? So Jeff, Ryan, I, I want to turn this over to you guys to go back and forth with each other to, to go over this process because it's extremely important. And, and Jeff, I'll, I'll start you with the conversation then, and then you and Ryan, please just, just cover these details. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm equally interested to hear what Ryan's process is. This is probably one of the things in our industry that is most widely debated because there is no right or wrong answer. Uh, I was engaged uh, on a transaction, the broker out of state, who refused to provide anything except summarized P&L prior to an offer being received. Not a, not a non-disclosure agreement, but an actual offer to purchase, non-binding, of course, as the first agreements typically are. But my process obviously requires a non-disclosure agreement. After the non-disclosure agreement is executed, I provide access to the ShareFile uh, workspace, which contains, on average, uh, 15 folders with none to six or eight folders deep of data in all manner of the, of the transaction, employee matters, client, uh, vendor matters, operations, financials. It's very comprehensive, but the information within that workspace has been redacted such that things like EIN numbers, social security numbers, employee names, client names are, are not available. So that type of data is withheld. Some, some is withheld until after closing. For example, in many cases, client names, if you have a strategic buyer, are never to be disclosed to a buyer. But in other cases, we're as liberal as allowing the buyer to interview key employees. So it, it's very case specific. But across our industry, I think you'll you'll see a wide range of answers to that question. And my my answer is similar to Jeff's, uh, thankfully. So uh, that transparency early on sets the tone for the rapport between the buyer and the seller. Not only in Jeff's example, where the broker is unwilling to share any information until an offer is made, not only does that make it harder to do a, a deal, but it also sets the mood for the buyer that you know, what's happening here? Is this going to be, am I going to be begging for every piece of information? Is the seller going to be transparent? If you don't start, how you start is how you finish. And, and in Jeff's case, if you start with appropriate and, and redacted information, but extensive and transparent at the same time, it really gives the seller or the buyer comfort that this is a deal that can get done because the buyer is going to have access uh, to the information during their due diligence review. And in that due diligence review, typically that buyer is looking at all things uh, financial, operational, and legal. And in those initial documents, many brokers think, well, here's the, here's the tax return and here's the P&L, you know, make an offer. And that's not the case. Uh, there's obviously two other uh, legs to the stool in terms of how is uh, how is the operation uh, handled on a day-to-day -day basis, who's involved, what types of customers and concentration do they have, what types of vendors and concentration do they have, and then legal disclosures about 
what's pending and what's in the history. As Jeff said, we would rather disclose and talk buyers out of it early. Those buyers that can make it over the initial hurdles of the business tend to be the ones that can also get to the closing table. We talked about confidentiality earlier, and most people think confidentiality is breached during the marketing stage. But during due diligence is a great opportunity for confidentiality to be breached and people to find out about the sale. So you have something that's under contract, Jeff, and the buyer comes in and they want all this information and it's shared with them. But one of the things they say, they, well, I want to talk to the employees or I want to, I want to negotiate with the landlord. But if they can't get past financial due diligence, uh, is it really necessary for them to meet an employee or talk to a landlord? So talk about the importance of stages during due diligence of when things should actually happen. Yeah, too much too soon is never a good thing. And your example in uh, reaching out to a landlord, of course, if we're assuming a lease, that that contact has to be made at some point. But if you make that too early, you now have contacted that landlord 10 or 20 times with buyers that were not appropriately pre-qualified. And that can alter the relationship between the landlord and, and your client. So we want to to delay. I was going to say wait until the last minute, but that's not typically the case because of efficiency and process management. That's not always the best approach. But we want to be very tactful in the timing of contacting various people, including the landlord, potentially employees, uh, potentially clients. And in some cases, uh, I was involved in a, a technology transaction where the, the client was licensed by the major manufacturers and there was not clarity in the, in the vendor contracts whether or not those were transferable when structured as an asset sale. But you don't want to be going to IBM 15 times asking if they would approve this buyer to transfer the medallion. So as you've said, and I think Ryan made very clear, timing, timing is critical. And, it, and having the experience to know when the right time is the right time is, is part of the benefit of working with the broker. And I think that's one place, especially where get themselves in trouble when they try to go alone is that they don't have the, the experience basis to know what's appropriate when and and what's appropriate uh, now versus uh, never. So uh, many sellers hold up when they do it themselves, they hold on to key information or they try to gloss over it or make sure you know, only add, answer questions that are asked by the buyer. And you're really better off to disclose, 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 but then time the, the proof over time, and, and especially as it relates to third-party approvals. So uh, there's, as Jeff said, there's no sense um, looking for third-party approvals if, you, if the first parties, you know, the buyer, hasn't done their part first. Everything in the sale of the business, every process is important and it's difficult. It's not easy. So I don't minimize uh, you know, anything by by saying what I'm about to say, but you know, you, you got a listing great, you marketed it wonderful, you found a buyer, terrific. Those are all very difficult things to do, finding the right buyer. But the stage from contract to closing is so difficult and so important. And when really it gives yourself, Jeff and and Ryan and, and you other brokers that are out there listening, your time to shine. That's when you're the hero for your client because so much happens during that period of time. So we go from contract to closing. We went through due diligence. Everybody's happy. Seller gets to move on to the next stage of their life. But, but Ryan, 
what happens next? What happens after the sale? There is this thing called the, a transition period. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So what happens next is hopefully exactly what is, was expected between the buyer and the seller and what was documented in the purchase agreement. And that's typically the transition or familiarization period after the sale. And so as part of the purchase arrangement, the seller will typically stay on in an advisory capacity for some number of days or weeks or even months as part of the deal. And that uh, includes transitioning relationships, understanding the, the culture of the business, understanding the, the types and clients that they have. It is not to teach somebody on a woodworking business to be a woodworker, right? It is not, it is not uh, formal training. It's more of a transition and familiarization period. And the timing of that period and the um, intensity of that period depends on the involvement of the owner. So as I said before, you know, the more involved the owner is in deep relationships with customers or part of the sales process, or if they are doing all of the estimates or if they're out in the field managing uh, teams, then the harder it is to uh, teach that buyer those duties and the longer it's going to take. So early on to help make the business saleable, the, not only um, getting yourself out of the way as the owner, does the, not only does that make the business more saleable, but it'll help after the sale, um, the amount of time commitment that you've got to put towards the new buyer. Yeah, I agree with all of Brian's comments. The, the transition process is important because it, it not only uh, on the part of the buyer uh, before the closing, but after the closing is a risk mitigation technique. If you had two identical businesses uh, and the same buyer and one seller said, I'll give you 40 hours, uh, and the other said, I'll give you three months and be accessible by email and text for another nine, the, the prudent buyer is going to go with option number two because their risk has been significantly mitigated by, ac by having access to the seller and their knowledge. Yeah, the lower the perceived risk, the better the price and the better the terms to the seller. And so not only is it important to negotiate that as part of the purchase agreement, but if you're a seller that has pride in ownership and really wants to see the thing succeed after the sale, then to have that seller actively offer that familiarization period after the sale goes a long, long way to, as Jeff said, not only building that trust and rapport, but it also helps the saleability and the terms uh, that you're going to get in the deal because it's all risk. And as a seller, what you don't want to do is use the sale of your business as your farewell revenge tour, meaning that, you know, you want that person that just paid you a lot of money. You want them to succeed. So you don't want to take the opportunity after you get the check to that one customer that bothered you all these years, but you didn't have the nerve to say anything to because you didn't want to lose their business. This is not your opportunity to tell them off. That one employee that was just bothering you all this time, you know, now that you have your money, it's not the time to put them in their place or, or tell them off because you could cause significant harm to the business. The employee may quit, the, the, the customer may, may go elsewhere, and you're potentially going to get sued. So, so guys, I mean, it, it, the transition of the, of the business is, is so important, and the, and the seller really has to have the, the attitude and the, uh, and the willingness to want to turn over uh, this to the 
the new owner in in a good smooth uh, way where where it's just business as usual, business as usual. Yeah. In addition, during that transition time, if there was um, if there was financing documents out there that had or licenses that need to be obtained uh, that the seller can assist with. Um, all of the utility bills that were in the seller's prior entity to be transferred and, and move that responsibility to the buyer. And also the seller is going to collect their old receivables or their outstanding receivables. And again, to Cress's point, this is not the time to beat down those, those um, customers' doors to collect your receivables and upset everybody and, and make, the, make it tougher for the new owner to deal with those same customers. And then lastly, the, once the receivables are in, you're going to pay, that seller's going to pay off, or I'm sorry, they're going to pay off trade payables along the way. Uh, any outstanding trade payables, collect their receivables, clear out their bank accounts, and eventually file their final tax returns and dissolve the corporation. So those things typically af- happen after the transition period, but there is a reason not just to help the buyer uh, during the familiarization period, but there is a reason to be there to, to move the responsible party on all of the overhead items that maybe weren't taken care of uh, at the closing, like the lease. Uh, everything else typically happens after the closing. And to these points, back to the legal perspective, an experienced transaction attorney is going to paper in what we call a normal in due course clause which means from a practical perspective that the seller up to and through the date of closing is not going to make operational or financial decisions that they would not have otherwise made. And subsequently after the transaction, the seller is not going to take action as, as an example was given against a client or an employee uh, that they wanted to normally done. In fact, after the closing, they would have they would have no standing to do that in my opinion, but certainly pre-closing during the due diligence period, the normal and due course clause would apply. Yeah, gentlemen, the the saddest time of the show for me is the ending of it because I sit here and I listen and I learn and I get to engage with people that I know and people I respect and people I learn from and, and, and I enjoy talking with. So unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show. But before we do that, I'd like you each to briefly just uh, give some parting advice. If someone's out there thinking about selling their business or even the business intermediary that Maybe they're new and they're they're selling businesses. You know, what advice would you give them? And and Ryan, I'll start with you. And then Jeff, when Ryan's done, if you don't mind sharing your thoughts, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. I think the best thing that a seller can do when contemplating uh, the sale of their business is to find people that'll be uh, honest with them. So whether it's honest about the valuation, about the saleability and about the timing from the broker's perspective, honest about their capabilities as an attorney, honest about their availability and uh, turnaround times as an accountant, uh, honest about their relationship uh, with their landlord, honest about the process with their franchise. I think that what you should do as a seller is to start with trying to find not just the service providers, but the people in your own business uh, that you that will be honest with you and that'll really help you through the process. If you're looking for people that just tell you what you want to hear, eventually you're going to end up with the people that were honest with you from the beginning because the people that told you what you wanted to hear weren't able to, to get done what you wanted to get done. 
I'd like to incorporate everything Ryan just said, and to the extent of finding those advisors that are going to be on your team, again, in the probably the most valuable transaction of your life, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the IBBA, which is the International Business Brokers Association, where you can find certified business intermediaries. The website's ibba.org, and all the resources that a practitioner in this industry needs are available there. Ryan and Jeff, I want to thank you both for taking time out of your very busy schedules. Uh, to be on the show today. You're always both great contributors to the IBBA and supportive of other brokers that are out there and, and great advocates and, and, and business for business owners uh, looking to either uh, potentially sell today or tomorrow or sometime in the future. So thank you both for being on today. You're welcome, thank Chris. You, Chris. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thanks for all your time and your, and your efforts as well. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. So all of you out there, you've been listening to Ryan Cave, who's the president of Sunbelt Business Brokers of South Florida, and Jeff Snell, who's the founder and owner of Inline Business Brokers and Advisors of Raleigh, North Carolina. You've been listening to two of the very best. They've shared their thoughts, their knowledge, and their insights, and would help you be better off in the sale of your business, uh, whether it's today or sometime in the future, or if you're selling businesses, just get to hear from your peers, get to hear from people that are doing it like you each and every day. And hopefully it added something uh, to your uh, to your business and, and helps you going forward. So thank you for joining us today. As always, I appreciate your support of the show and invite you to join us for future episodes of IBBA Insights. If you missed a show or just want to listen to other episodes, you can go to IBBA.org slash insights. And once you're there, you can subscribe by clicking the Apple, Android, or email icons. And then you never have to miss an episode again, of IBBA Insights. It's been my pleasure today talking with Jeff, talking with Ryan, and bringing you another exciting show with two incredible guests. Please join us again on the next episode of IBBA Insights.